Anthem Church. Uh, for those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Nana. Um, I am here with uh, my lovely wife, Dana, and our one-year-old, Cora. Um, special warm welcome to those of you joining us for the first or second time. Um, we're obviously glad to have you, um, in case you haven't realized. Uh, in these last few Sundays before Christmas, we have been in a sermon series entitled Our Savior King. Um, Griffin kicked us off two weeks ago, showing us how Jesus is the promised one. <laughs> um, the coming Messiah, the king to whom all the Jewish scriptures point, and the answer to the longing within each of us for more than this. Last week, Steve declared the gospel, the good news, that Jesus is here. He is God with us. While the Emperor Augustus had messengers declaring the good news of Caesar, Throughout his newly established Roman Empire, the true king, Jesus, arrives on the scene, and the angels can't help but sing. And today we have even more good news. A continuation, really. Jesus, our Savior King, is coming back. Praise God. As we'll see through scripture today, this truth means that our ultimate hope as followers of Jesus is for his eventual final return. That in doing so, heaven will be joined with earth Christ will join with his bride. All sorrow and sighing, pain and grief will be done away with, including one-year-old tears. Um, and we will all inherit a new creation. We live with that hope, which enables us for now to wait. Uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, give us eyes and hearts to see anew all that you have done for us, all of who you are, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So my thing got weird. <laughs> Sorry about that. So we've talked about Jesus um, over the last few weeks a lot. Sorry, I need to find my spot. And rightly so. For one thing, it's Christmas. It's the holiday and the season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus with nativity scenes and decorations and gifts. Um, and here at Anthem, we can't help but talk about Jesus. Whether it's Testimony Sunday three weeks ago where we got to hear the amazing things that God has been doing in the lives of friends and family here at Anthem Church, um, or it's during this sermon series about our Savior King, whether it's life groups or fusion or in the cafe outside these doors sipping on a delicious latte. Why? Because Jesus is literally everything. He is God himself. He is the payment for our sins. He is the lover of our souls, the healer of our bodies, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, the promised one who has come and will come again, and the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The apostle Paul in Colossians 1 puts it this way, starting in verse 15. He is, uh, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
and he's coming back. This is such good news. Um, But maybe it's helpful to set the stage a little bit so we're ready to really believe this and live in it. Highlights reel. Genesis 1 begins with a song of creation. The earth, we are told, is formless and empty. Darkness hovering over the surface of the deep. And into this silent, never-ending night, God speaks. Let there be light, he begins. And by the sound of his voice, the command of his lips, light, matter, and life burst into existence. And the crowning piece of this creative project He creates mankind in his own image. Male and female, he creates them to reign over his creation as his prime ministers. God sees it fit to delegate his authority as ruler over all things and chooses to tend to this world flourishing through mankind. And we are to increase and multiply and fill the whole earth so that the image of God might reign everywhere, and flourishing might come to every corner of his world. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Before long, we are tempted by the allure of being our own kings and queens to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And so we steal from God, taking the fruit and eating it, the one thing he had commanded us not to do. Too late, we realize we've been deceived. And that which we thought would bring us abundant life only brings death. It is the death of our relationship with God. No more will we walk with him in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day in the garden. It is the death of our relationship with each other. We accuse each other to clear our own names. And while we desire to love each other, we are plagued with the desire to, the need to dominate each other. It's the, need, it's the death of our relationship to our true selves. Um, suddenly we feel the shame of our own nakedness We feel fear in place of love, and we are plagued by warring desires of good and evil, and yet unable to actually be good. And it's the death of our relationship with the earth. Work, which was a good thing, now transforms into labor and toil. And even today, we can see how we dominate the earth and take what resources it can give us, sorry, what resources we can take, rather than nurturing the flourishing of all things in God's world. But in the midst of the curse, God establishes the promise. Speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Foreshadowing. Um, Thank you for laughing at that. (laughs) Adam and Eve never see this promise fulfilled. Their first son, Cain, murders the younger brother, Abel. Not exactly the serpent crushing that they were looking for. Um, And then they have another son, Seth. But while we don't read about him murdering anyone, the only thing we know about him is the sons he has and the length of his years. And down and down the list goes of fathers and sons, parents and offsprings, for generation after generation with nothing happening. During which time God breaks his silence multiple times to call mankind back to himself, met with varying degrees of faithfulness on our part and all the mile marching steadily towards the fulfillment of this promise. There's Noah in Genesis 7 who chooses to believe God when he says he's sending a flood and he and his family are saved on the ark. He falls into a naked, drunken stupor and then curses his son for laughing at him. Um, Then in Genesis 12, we meet Abram, who God calls with a promise. Uh, This is Genesis 12, verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land 
that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the good part. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Note, we were told at the end of chapter 11, right before this, that Sarai, Abraham's wife, was barren. But our God is in the business of bringing dead things to life. In chapter 15, God makes a covenant to Abraham, changes his name to Abraham. And we need to linger here a little because this is so important to see. A covenant is more than a binding legal contract. In biblical times, you would seal a covenant by taking an animal and splitting it in two, and then you would both walk through the carcasses and the blood, basically saying, hey, if I break this covenant, let it be done to me as was done to this animal. Gruesome. Um, but that's what makes chapter 15 all the more shocking. When Abraham points out to God that he is still childless and asks how he can know the promise will come to pass, God tells him, prepare the animals, set up the pieces, and makes a covenant with him, but God alone walks through the animals. Why? Because God covenants himself to Abraham, again foreshadowing that he, God, is willing to die in order to bring his promises to pass. Even though Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness, he sleeps with his servant, his wife's servant at her request, then allows his wife to mistreat Hagar, the servant, until she flees, returns, and is eventually sacked. Um, still, God changes his name, and eventually he has a son, Isaac, who God asks Abraham to sacrifice, but then provides a ram instead for the sacrifice at the last minute. Genesis 22:15 to 18 says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Foreshadowing. Isaac has two sons, uh, but he, favor, he favors the firstborn Esau to the point that he's willing to bless him completely to the neglect of the second. Jacob, the younger, tricks Esau into selling him his birthright and then pulls the wool over his father's eyes almost literally to gain his blessing. Jacob also falls into the favoritism trap when he has his 12 sons, um, favoring the 11th, um, and his other 10 sons sell him into slavery to Egypt. God stays with Joseph, though, elevating him to the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, and through him, the, all the nations are blessed because he is able to plan ahead for a famine that sweeps over the world. Genesis ends with God's chosen family, the family of Abraham, and all of their belongings in Egypt. There's 400 years of slavery. Moses is born a Jew, but adopted by Pharaoh, and eventually flees into the wilderness for 40 years to avoid being tried for murder. God sends him back to Egypt to set his people free. Um, God shows his power and his might, and the lengths that he will go to deliver his people, including plagues, pillars of fire, parting of the sea. For more on this, please go watch The Prince of Egypt by DreamWorks. Um, 
In the wilderness, God gives the people of Israel his law. You may have heard of the Ten Commandments. Um, but just as importantly, he gives himself in the form of the tabernacle, the actual presence and glory of God inhabiting the Ark of the Covenant within a 15 by 15 by 15 foot cube in the most holy place inside the tabernacle behind a veil. He provides manna from heaven and water from rocks, but the people of Israel worship him half-heartedly at best, wandering for 40 years in the desert until Joshua leads them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Of all the adults that left Egypt, only Joshua and Caleb make it into the Promised Land. Even Moses sees the promise from afar but is unable to enter. Israel takes possession of this land, promising to serve the one true God and live under his authority. They are now a light to the world so that others might know that there is a one true God who has brought them out of Egypt and into this promised land. But the book of Judges, we see them spiraling down this cycle of idolatry. They sin, they're enslaved, they cry out, God redeems them, there is peace. They sin, they're enslaved, they cry out. God redeems them, there's peace. And each time the cycle runs, their sin and idolatry just deepens and worsens to the point where you get to First and Second Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, and Israel now is crying out, we don't want God to be our king. We want a man to be our king so that we can be like all of the other nations. Even though God warns them through Samuel that this won't be for their good, they do it anyway. So they anoint Saul as the first king. And despite being described as tall, dark, and handsome, he would barely make the cut for even the most questionable Disney prince. <laughs> then comes the shepherd king David, a man after God's own heart, who saves Israel from the menace of the Philistines. God establishes his dynasty in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He will, build, he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, when the stripes, with the stripes of the son of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills her husband to hide his guilt. His sons are no better. Um, and the line of kings that follow is mostly bad, sprinkled in with some good. Eventually, Israel is sent into exile under the Babylonians, all the while the prophets begin to speak the word of God across the land. And here and there, we start to hear about the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, who will come to redeem both the people of Israel, but through them, all the nations of the world. Finally, the Old Testament ends with Malachi. After him, there is silence. Another 400 years go by. The Medo Persian and Greek empires pass away. Caesar Augustus becomes the first Roman emperor, as Steve was telling us last week, um, declaring the good news of Rome, the Pax Romana. But in the little town of Nazareth, into this world of always winter but never Christmas, at last, 
The words come to a young Jewish girl betrothed to a carpenter. Aslan is on the move. Luke records the event in Theo to Theophilus in the first chapter of his gospel. The angel Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. The angels sing Hosanna in the highest at his birth. Thirty years later, after passing through the Jordan River himself in his baptism and wandering in the desert for 40 days, fasting before God and resisting the temptations of the devil, Jesus finally walks into a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and unrolls the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. Luke 4, 18 to 21. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's exactly what he's, he does. He starts his ministry. He comes close to the leper and the brokenhearted, touching those who are untouchable and healing with compassion. He defends the defenseless, refusing to cast the stone that would kill them. He gives water that needs no replenishing and raises the dead as though they had but fallen asleep. He lives the life you and I were made to live, yet goes willingly to the cross to die on our behalf, establishing a new covenant in his blood, crying out, it is finished. Oh, sure, there's silence and darkness for three days, but in the greatest plot twist of all, he rises from the dead, defeating sin and death once and for all. Why is this good news? Because Jesus is the true and second Adam who lives faithfully to God. Because he is the offspring that crushes the head of the serpent, defeating Satan's sin and death. He is the better Cain, who doesn't murder his younger brother, but dies in his stead so that Abel can live life abundantly. He is the ram in the place of Isaac. He is the better Moses that leads all who would believe in him out of the kingdom of darkness into his glorious kingdom of light. He has torn the veil separating us from the presence of God and is God himself tabernacling with us in flesh. He is the root and the offspring of David, the true savior king of whom all the prophets spoke, whose kingdom will have no end. And he's coming back. He hasn't even left us as orphans. He has given us his Holy Spirit as a deposit, a seal of our adoption as sons and daughters of God, all of who would believe in his name and call out. And the power to live the lives we were meant to live, taking up our cross daily to follow him. But that's not all. Revelations 21, 1 to 5, the apostle John, seeing a vision, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
that I lost where I was reading. <laughs> I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And I love, love this verse. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the Jesus who is coming back. It's not enough to just hope in some pie in the sky, we'll be playing harps in the cloud. That's not what, how the story ends. The story ends with our true Savior King coming back and establishing his reign amongst us. Not as spirits. The flesh you wear will be made new. That is your destiny. Back in 2016... Back in 2016, um, I had gone swimming um, and got back home and started itching really badly. Um, and I tried everything. I, I took a shower to get the chlorine off because that's what I thought it was. I put some Vaseline on, I took an oat bath and nothing worked. For two hours, I was curled up in my bed just scratching every itch I could. Until finally my roommate came home, graciously walked to Walgreens to get me some calamine lotion, which was the only thing that um, comforted me enough for me to be able to fall asleep. Over the years, I have tried everything I and my three dermatologists so far can think of. It's gotten better. Um, most days I don't itch, but usually at night I'll wake up and have to go and get an ice pack. Um, because that helps with the etching. I say all this to say, it, I don't just hope that my spirit will be with Jesus. What I'm literally itching for is this body made whole. And I know the stories of many of us walking through these doors on a Sunday morning, through the last two years we've had, but even this year, and the children we've had to bury, the marriages we've had to say farewell to. That's not the end of the story. He's, he's coming back. And behold, he is making all things new. Um, let's pray. Uh, this is the hope that we have when we trust in Jesus. And I just want to make sure that I, I give the space for any of us who, who haven't yet um, put our trust in him. What does that even mean? Uh, really, it's, it's, it's a journey. It's saying, hey, Jesus, I've heard all of the, what you've done for me. Um, if you will forgive me of my sins, I, I will embark on this journey with you to know you and, and to live according to your ways. Um, 
If that's you, wherever you're seated, you don't need to raise your hand, just in the silence of your own heart, if you would repeat after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you've done. Um, I may or may not know what I'm getting myself into, but I trust you, and I believe in you, and I accept you for the payment of my sins. Would you come into my heart today? And God, for the rest of us, I just pray that you would give us, continue to give us eyes to see, hearts to believe all that you have done, what you're doing in spite of our circumstances, good or bad, but how much you have prepared for those who love you, who are called according to your name. God, may we latch on to this hope and may it define how we live every single day. And may we rejoice next week knowing that you were born, that you did die for our sins and you rose from the dead in glory, but that you are coming again. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Nana. That was amazing. Let's give him a round of applause. That was awesome. Thank you.